0: Two weeks after Valentine's Day 2001, a magnitude 6.8 earthquake struck the South Sound region of Washington State, near where Nisqually River empties into Puget Sound. It was nearly 11 a.m. on a Wednesday, and the state legislature was in full swing. The violent tremors lasted nearly a minute, rocking the state capital of Olympia and the nearby cities of Lacey, Tumwater, Nisqually, DuPont, and Shelton. The shocks registered as far away as Oregon. Idaho, and Canada. Legislative staffers either took cover as best they could in a marble and sandstone building, or ran screaming into the streets as the iconic dome of the century-old Capitol building cracked, splintering a support buttress. If it weren't for previous earthquake resistance work, the dome might have collapsed, pulled down from within by the weight of the Volkswagen-sized chandelier in the Capitol Rotunda which ominously swayed back and forth for hours after the tremor. Property damage estimates up and down Western Washington totaled between one and four billion dollars. One person died of a heart attack and nearly 400 were injured. This was a large earthquake that hit the Puget Sound region, but it wasn't the first, not by a long shot. I'm Eric Ebel, your fearless field guide to Washington State history, heritage, and culture. And on this groundbreaking episode of the Washington Hour Home Podcast, we're taking a look at earthquakes in the Pacific Northwest. We live on fault lines here in Washington State, which means it's not a matter of if, but when will the big one hit. Thank you so much for joining me for another year of fun, fascinating folklore from the greatest state in the lower 48. I hope you had a nice holiday season and are off to a great start in 2021. Season three of the Washington Hour Home Podcast begins right now. My father, the senior fearless field guide, told me about a new show on Nat Geo, available through Disney Plus, called X-Ray Earth. It offers an unprecedented look inside our planet using underground monitoring sensors scattered across the world. Many of those sensors, some 1,100 in fact, are located here in the Pacific Northwest and just off our coastline. The data provided by these sensors confirms what scientists have been warning us about for years. The entire western edge of North America sits atop a geologic hotspot known as a subduction zone, which is ultimately what puts us most at risk for earthquakes. But let's back up just a bit. Say you don't know anything about geology. Or geography. Or even Earth's northwestern hemisphere, for that matter. Here's a quick and dirty summary of how plate tectonics works to help prime our discussion on earthquakes today. Millions of years ago, the surface of the Earth consisted of one enormous landmass called Pangaea, and an even more enormous body of water called Panthalassa that was essentially the ocean, as it was the only one. All of this land and water floated atop a planetary lake of magma which is basically superheated molten rock and metal. Even after they pay me the money, I'm still gonna melt every city on the planet with liquid hot magma. We call it lava once it reaches the surface. The land and water made up the Earth's crust, and the magma just beneath it made up what's called Earth's mantle. Now boiling hot rock and metal tends to be very active, generating gases and building pressure in various places, and swirling around the planet as it spins on its axis in space. Because of these forces, weak spots along the Earth's crust, both underwater and on land, would sometimes crack open to allow the release of this pressure, and hot magma would come to the surface, sometimes building mountains over eons, and sometimes just pushing open the crack a little wider each time as the lava cooled and became new land. After millions of years of this geologic activity, these cracks eventually reached the ocean, and water came rushing in, separating the land masses into two pieces slowly drifting apart. This was happening in countless places all over Pangaea and under the ocean, and over time those land masses that drifted apart became the continents that we recognize on Earth today. It all happens so slowly that it can barely be registered as movement. But rest assured, it is happening. And under the surface, the boiling ocean of magma is just as active as ever. Eventually, the chunks of land floating around on the magma were called tectonic plates and given names. The mammoth plate resting under the Pacific Ocean is called the Pacific Plate. And the one supporting North America is called, you guessed it, the North American Plate. Here in Washington, we live atop a tiny shard of one of those two plates called the Juan de Fuca Plate, a microplate named for the Greek explorer who sailed the area between Vancouver and the Olympic Peninsula on behalf of Spain's King Philip II in 1592. So we've built cities, highways, and civilization atop this intersection of unfathomably large tectonic plates that just happen to be crashing into each other, with North America traveling about 2.3 centimeters per year, and the Pacific sideswiping it at about 7 to 11 centimeters per year. As the two plates collide, one of them is buckling under the other one. Imagine taking two sheets of paper on a smooth tabletop and pushing them together. One of them will start to bulge and deform until the pressure becomes too great, then it will suddenly snap free and slip beneath the overtaking sheet. Well, that's exactly what's happening on a planetary scale to these two plates. The Pacific plate traveling northwest-ish is being pushed under the North American plate as it travels in a southwest-ish direction. This process is called subduction, and we live atop the Cascadia subduction zone. And like our paper example, when the pressure between the two plates reaches a breaking point, the rift snaps as one plate is folded under the other. And when this happens, you guessed it again, my friends, earthquake. How's that for a crash course in geology? Now that we know how earthquakes happen in the Pacific Northwest, let's get back to the Nat Geo show, X-Ray Earth. The very first episode of the pilot season is all about looking inside the Earth beneath Washington State to get a closer look at these geologic forces at work. It is a fascinating documentary series. I highly recommend giving it a view. One of the things we learned from the program was that a major fault lies just 80 miles off the Pacific Northwest coast, and the pressure there has been silently building for over 300 years. When it slips, not if, it will generate a megaquake and a tsunami that will devastate the region, threatening the lives of 15 million residents living above the Cascadia subduction zone. What's worse, the entire area underneath Seattle and Elliott Bay specifically is essentially a gigantic basin of bedrock filled with soft soil rising up beneath our feet. In one dramatic experiment on this X-ray Earth program, you can plainly see how the ridges of this underground basin would reverberate and magnify shockwaves, turning the softer soil into a kind of soup. The effect is known as liquefaction, and it presents one of the largest dangers the Pacific Northwest would have to grapple with in the event of a megaquake. After seeing what happened to double-decker freeways in California after a major earthquake there, it is a very good thing that Washington decided to dismantle our Alaskan Way Viaduct, lest tens of thousands of commuters be trapped or killed when two layers pancake together during a major seismic event. Scary to just think about it. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll take a look at the history of recorded earthquakes in Washington state. Back after this. If a natural disaster comes knocking, how prepared is your family? You can't just close the door on earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes and hope they go away. That's why it's important to make a plan now. Ready.gov slash plan has the tools and tips you need to prepare your family for an emergency. So if disaster shows up at your doorstep, you'll be ready. Visit ready.gov slash plan and make a plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Welcome back. It turns out that Washington State is no stranger to earthquakes. According to Wikipedia, there have been 10 earthquakes larger than a magnitude 5.0 in the past 300 years. The first occurred on January 26, in the year 1700. Scientists have figured out that it hit around 9 p.m. Pacific time and registered a magnitude between 8.7 and 9.2. And very quickly, you may be wondering why I'm not noting the magnitude of the quakes on the Richter scale, something almost all of us learned about as kids. Well, like the planet Pluto and math in general these days, apparently there's a new and more accurate way to do this, and scientists have developed multiple earthquake scales. To avoid confusion, we're just using the term magnitude, and the higher the number, the worse it gets. Anyway, the 1700 quake was so powerful it triggered a tsunami which reached the shores of Japan approximately ten hours later. Although there are no written records in our region from that time, the timing of the earthquake has been inferred from Japanese records of a tsunami that does not correlate with any other Pacific Rim quake. The most important clue linking the tsunami in Japan and the earthquake in the Pacific Northwest comes from the studies of tree rings taken from cedar trees along the Washington and Oregon coastlines. These particular trees scattered across beaches in Oregon and on the Copalis River in Washington are known as ghost forests since they were all killed by a sudden lowering of coastal land into the tidal zone by the earthquake. You can get a lot of great information and see some really dramatic photos and graphic representations on the Nat Geo program. There are also Indian legends that correspond to roughly the same time period. Virtually all of the tribes in the region have at least one traditional story of an event much stronger and more destructive than any other that their community has ever experienced. Stories from the north end of Vancouver Island report a nighttime earthquake that caused nearly all the houses in their community to collapse. Cowichan stories from Vancouver Island's inner coast speak of a nighttime earthquake that caused a landslide that buried an entire village. Macaw stories from Washington speak of a great nighttime earthquake of which the only survivors were those who fled inland before the tsunami hit. And the Quileute people in Washington have a story about a flood so powerful that villagers in their canoes were swept inland all the way to the Hood Canal. A little more than a century and a half later, Washington was struck by another series of earthquakes in the North Cascades region. The 1872 quake and subsequent aftershocks began around 9.40 p.m. Because the earthquake occurred before seismometers were a thing, the magnitude of the shock and its location were never precisely determined, but scientists studied the intensity reports for the event and proposed various epicenters based on this limited data. One study estimated a magnitude of 6.5 to 7, with a proposed epicenter on the east side of the Cascade Range near Lake Chelan. The results of a separate study indicated that it may have been an even larger event, placing the shock directly under Ross Lake in the North Cascades. During the initial 24 hours, the aftershocks were strong enough to be felt in Idaho and into southern British Columbia. The intensity of the shocks waned as time passed, but a year after the main quake, they were still occurring. The area around Entiat remained seismically active well into the 20th century, leading to the speculation that the earthquakes were actually long-lived aftershocks from the 1872 event. One fascinating legend from that time period involves a certain U.S. Army cavalry captain named Benjamin Ingalls. In 1855, Ingalls was surveying in the North Cascades when he reached a canyon that contained three alpine lakes connected by a mountain stream. He described the two outer lakes as dark and bottomless, but the middle lake he observed was a sparkling emerald color. On closer inspection, Ingalls found that the shore of the middle lake was littered with gold ore embedded in quartz. Ingalls was, of course, overjoyed, and hastily finished his surveying mission. He made a map to the lakes and buried it near what is now Mount Stewart, with the intention of returning later without his men. In the spring of 1861, Ingalls took his son Benjamin Jr. and a few trusted friends and joined a prospecting group headed from Portland, Oregon to British Columbia along the eastern side of the Cascade Range. Secretly, they detached from the group at Peshaston and headed east into the mountains in search of the Lake of Gold. As the group proceeded on foot, they passed through a thicket of trees. Some low-hanging branches caught the trigger of a rifle carried by the man following Ingalls. The rifle discharged and Ingalls was shot in the back. He lingered for two days as his companions reversed course and carried him back toward Peshastan, allowing him to relay details of the map and the lake's location to one of his trusted friends before he succumbed to his injury. He was buried across from the mouth of the Wenatchee River on the Columbia River's eastern bank. When the North Cascade's quake hit, it is speculated that the force was so powerful that it crumbled the mountaintops surrounding the valley, burying the lakes in earthquake debris. Ingalls' companions mounted several successive attempts to locate the gold based on his dying description of the location, but they were never successful. Good story, huh? Let's take a break for some trivia, shall we? This is the part of the podcast where I give you five multiple-choice questions based on today's topic, and you listen through to the end of the episode to find out if you're as smart as you think you are. Ready? Question one. What was the magnitude of the 2001 Nisqually earthquake that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode? Was it A, 7.8, B, 6.2, C, 5.8, or D, 6.8? Again, the magnitude of the Nisqually earthquake of 2001. Was it 7.8, 6.2, 5.8, or 6.8? Question two. Tour guides at the Washington State Capitol in Olympia like to describe the massive chandelier in the rotunda as being able to fit a specific vehicle inside of it. To what car are they referring? Is it A, a Ford Pinto, B, a Honda Fit, C, a Toyota Prius, or D, a Volkswagen Beetle? Is it A, a Ford Pinto, B, a Honda Fit, C, a Toyota Prius, or D, a Volkswagen Beetle. Question three, what is the name of the supercontinent that eventually broke into the pieces we know as continents today? Was it A, Panacea, B, Pangaea, C, Panera, or D, Pasadena? Question four, the Strait of Juan de Fuca is named after a 16th century explorer who sailed under the Spanish flag but was not actually Spanish. What was his ethnic origin? And bonus points if you can tell me his name. Was he A, German, B, Croatian, C, Greek, or D, French? Was he A, German, B, Croatian, C, Greek, or D, French? And question five. What is the name of the collection of volcanoes that line the edges of the Pacific tectonic plate? Is it A, the Circle of Death? B, the Burning Border? C, the Edge of Hades? Or D, the Ring of Fire? Some of these might be easy. Others are not. Find out how you did at the end of the episode. When we come back, we'll learn more about the quakes of the 20th century and how one of them led to the development of a safety system here in Washington State. Dealing with COVID-19 is uncharted territory and everyone has different challenges. People may feel anxious, down, or overwhelmed. For some, these feelings can lead to changes in sleep patterns, an increased use of alcohol or drugs, or withdrawing from the people around them. If you know someone who's having a hard time coping, you can help by reaching out to talk and listen. To learn more about how you can help someone in need, call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-TALK. Brought to you by the state of Washington. Welcome back to our groundbreaking, earth-shattering episode on earthquakes in the Pacific Northwest. Taking a look at the 20th century... On April 29th, 1945, there was a magnitude 5.5 quake centered near North Bend that did some minor damage here in Washington. Chances are, however, it was overshadowed by the ongoing World War II Battle of Okinawa, the sudden death of President Franklin Roosevelt a few weeks earlier, and the confirmed suicide of Adolf Hitler, which happened the very next day. A 7.3 earthquake struck Vancouver Island in 1946, one of the most damaging earthquakes in the history of British Columbia. This is Canada's largest onshore earthquake. Here in Washington State, some chimneys fell at East Sound on Orcas Island, and a concrete mill was damaged at Port Angeles. In Seattle, some damage occurred on upper floors of tall buildings and one bridge was damaged, The shock was felt strongly in Bellingham, Olympia, Raymond, and Tacoma, and the earthquake was powerful enough to knock the needle off of a seismograph at the University of Washington. Three years later, a 7.1 magnitude quake struck between Olympia and Tacoma, killing eight people and injuring 64. Damage in Olympia from the earthquake was estimated between $500,000 and $1 million by Governor Art Langley. Eight buildings on the state capitol campus were damaged by the earthquake, as well as the old capitol building in downtown Olympia, and a 23-ton cradle on the east tower of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge fell 500 feet, injuring two men. The earthquake caused geysers to explode along the railroad tracks in the Tacoma Tidal Flats and in Puyallup, chimneys throughout western Washington collapsed. In Seattle, nearly every building in the Pioneer Square neighborhood was affected in one way or another, with damage ranging from lost parapets to entire floors, and in some cases, entire buildings that needed to be demolished in the following years. A couple of quakes in more recent memory happened in the 1960s. One struck Clark County in 1962, and another just south of Seattle in 1965. The 65 quake registered a 6.7, causing about $20 million in damages and killing seven people, three by falling debris, and four others from heart attacks. Single-story, unreinforced brick buildings took the brunt of the damage, and minor damage like fallen chimneys and cracked mortar was reported everywhere. The two Boeing plants at Renton and Seattle, both built on artificial fill and mudflats, suffered major damage. Nearly a quarter mile of Union Pacific Railroad track hung suspended in the air after the fill dirt beneath it slid away from the line outside Olympia. The state capitol building suffered cracking to the dome and supporting buttresses, leaving it in a condition where a major aftershock could have caused a complete collapse. The damage and deaths in the 1965 earthquake were tragic but they helped bring about the installation of the Pacific Northwest Seismic Network in 1969. The PNSN collects and studies ground motions from about 400 seismometers in the states of Oregon and Washington. PNSN monitors volcanic and tectonic activity, gives advice and information to the public and policymakers, and works to mitigate earthquake hazards. It was the PNSN that successfully used seismic activity data to predict the 1980 Mount St. Helens eruption, after which monitoring was expanded to other Cascade mountain volcanoes. The Pacific Northwest Seismic Network, in conjunction with the Cascades Volcano Observatory of the U.S. Geological Survey, now monitors seismic activity at all the Cascade volcanoes in Washington and Oregon. Thirty-six years after the 1965 quake that created the PNSN, the Nisqually earthquake of 2001 prompted a significant expansion of that network, as well as the demolition of Seattle's structurally unsound Alaskan Way Viaduct. Following the quake, many buildings and structures in the area were closed temporarily for inspection, including several critical bridges, all state offices in Olympia, Boeing's factories in the Seattle area, various schools across the state also closed for the day. The Fourth Avenue Bridge in downtown Olympia was so heavily damaged that it had to be torn down completely and rebuilt. In Seattle, the Alaskan Way viaduct was replaced eventually with the State Route 99 tunnel and an expanded Alaskan Way on the footprint of the old viaduct. The new tunnel now is designed to withstand a magnitude 9.0 earthquake. So Do you remember where you were when the 2001 Nisqually quake hit? Many of my former colleagues in the Washington State Legislature lived through that nightmare and have shared their memories with me. At the time, I was in my Spokane apartment building when I heard what I thought was the sound of a garbage truck that had backed up into a dumpster. It was a loud bang that sounded like it came from very nearby, like in the complex parking lot. As I later learned, it was the Nisqually quake that I had felt, some 320 miles away. To quote the movie Armageddon, It happened before. It will happen again. It's just a question of when. A 2014 book written by Seattle Times science reporter Sandy Doughton is called Full Rip 9.0, The Next Big Earthquake in the Pacific Northwest, published by Sasquatch Books. It introduces readers to the scientists dedicated to understanding the way the Earth moves and describes what patterns can be identified and how prepared, or not, we are here in the greatest state in the lower 48. With a 100% chance of a mega quake hitting the Pacific Northwest, this fascinating book reports on the scientists who are trying to understand when, where, and just how big the big one will be. Time for your answers to this episode's trembler inducing trivia questions. For those of you playing along at home, let's see how you did. Question one was What was the magnitude of the 2001 Nisqually earthquake? And the answer was D, a 6.8. Not the strongest we've ever had, but easily in the top three. Question two was What vehicle do tour guides in Olympia liken to the size of the chandelier in the Capitol Rotunda? while a Toyota Prius and a Honda Fit might both fit inside, the correct answer, as you'd know if you've ever taken the free tour, is D, a Volkswagen Beetle. Question three, name the original supercontinent that once made up the entirety of land on planet Earth. Your incorrect answers were A, Panacea, a solution or remedy for all difficulties or diseases, C, Panera, an American chain store of bakery-cafe-fast-casual restaurants with over 2,000 locations, and D, Pasadena, a city in California northeast of Los Angeles known for hosting the annual Rose Bowl college football game each New Year's Day. No, the correct answer is B, Pangea, a supercontinent that existed during the late Paleozoic and early Mesozoic eras, whose name is derived from the ancient Greek words pan, meaning all, entire, or whole, and gaia, meaning Mother Earth, or land. And as I learned while doing this research, it may not have been the first supercontinent Earth has known. It just happens to be the most recent one, and the first that geologists have been able to reconstruct. Interesting. Question four, the Strait of Juan de Fuca is not named after a 16th century German, Croatian, or French explorer. The correct answer is C. Juan de Fuca was a Greek who sailed for Spain. And his real name for the bonus points? Ioannis Focus. And I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. He was born in 1536 on the Ionian island of Cephalonia and died there in 1602. Which brings us to question five. Name the collection of volcanoes that line the edges of the Pacific tectonic plate. The correct answer is D. The Ring of Fire! Turn on the Ring of Fire. The Ring of Fire! You said you could do it. Ring of Fire! I fell into a burning ring of fire. I went down, 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 and the flames went higher. And it That's burned. it for this month's epic earthquake episode of the Washington Hour Home podcast. For more information on how to prepare in the event of the inevitable earthquake, please visit www.ready.gov to learn how to drop, hold, and cover, make an emergency plan, and protect yourself and your loved ones when the big one hits. Next month, we're taking a look at a darker time in Washington state history when labor and ethnic tensions got the better of tolerance and inclusivity. The Chinese expulsion occurred in February 1886, when a group of Seattle residents tried to force Chinese immigrants out of the city. Seattle was just one of many cities and towns on the West Coast that tried to remove Chinese immigrants in the 1880s. The Chinese were brought down to the docks, and the crowd tried to load them onto a waiting ship. Pushing and shoving commenced. Shots rang out, and someone in the crowd fell. Territorial Governor Watson C. Squire and President Grover Cleveland had to declare martial law and send in federal troops to the city to maintain order. Although martial law was lifted on February 22nd of that same year, the troops remained in Seattle for four months. Meanwhile. Virtually all of the Chinese residents were forced to leave town. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, Blueberry, or whatever podcast listening service you use. More ratings helps more people find the podcast and helps us spread the word about the greatest state in the lower 48. Be sure to subscribe for new episodes featuring stories from Washington State's history, heritage, and culture. And follow Washington Our Home on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest. I hope you enjoyed this month's episode. You can reach me at eric at Washingtonourhome.com. That's E R I C H at WashingtonOurHome.com to send feedback, ask questions, or even sponsor the show. Until next time, I'm your fearless field guide, Eric Ebel, and I'll see you somewhere in Washington.